And speaking of friends of the podcast, oh, sorry. Um, you say friends of the podcast. No, 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 carry on. Hello, classicos de parados, mi etrology avale portos, Scorpio. Mi new cuniatera anterior, Scorpio. Mi new cuniatera exterior, Scorpio. Monto Blanco, Scorpio. Costa, Scorpio. Metrologicus mañana, oh, Scorpio. Bono estente. Bono estente. Hello, dear listener. Welcome back to Where Eagles Dare. Hello. For all your lockdown joy. <laughs> this episode, we're covering issues 108 to 111 of the New Eagle, which is mid-April to early May 1984. The 14th of the 4th to the 5th of the 5th, in fact. Mm. Some synchronicity there. Yes. And what a month for 1984. For me, just so definitive. The 80s have begun. You're four years late, dude. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm, I'm one of those people who believes that the decade does not begin on the zero, that, that it sort of has a little time to, to bed itself in. So, I mean, it's not all good news, Dave. No. Uh, we have a WPC shot at the demonstration at the Libyan Embassy in London. Mm. The US, the UK and the USSR all perform nuclear tests. Where's Doomlord when you need him? Yeah. <laughs> Watch the space. <laughs> Footloose dislodges Thriller as the number one album in the US. Yes. And the AIDS virus is identified. What did I say? Oh, yeah. And the Agent Orange case is settled out of court for an unfeasibly large sum of money. Yeah. All of which um, just really wants you to bury your head in a comic and escape it all. Well... For those of you worrying about 2020, you know, it didn't all start here. <laughs> no. But Dave, I'm very excited this month. Yes. It's the return of one of my favourites. One of your favourites too, I hope. One of everyone's favourites. It can only be the return of Doom Lord by Alan Grant. Mm-hmm. Art by Heinzel. We open cold, in the cold of space, where Doomlord Vec stands on the space shuttle Columbia, shooting meteors with his energizer ring. How did this happen? Flashback to the moment we've all been waiting for. The Sousters have reached Butlins. <laughs> it's all Corey's fault. <laughs> what a sight. Eric Plumrose, Doomlord's human alter ego, in a hanky hat. And all is well. Doomlord uses the convenience of a fancy dress ball to warp into his true form, which is much less exhausting. Mrs. Souster is Hilda Ogden, such a fangirl. Which must have... <laughs> but I'm thinking that it must appeal to Vic in some sweet way. But oh no! Four other Doomlords are at the ball. Hopefully no Death Lords. It's just a competition. Meanwhile, in space, the Meteor Swarm is approaching Columbia. And it's hit, and it's damaged. Next week, only a Doomlord can save them now. <laughs> Such a cracking start. So, so is Gene Alexander Hilda Ogden out of Coronation Street, the fantasy casting for Mrs. Souster, do you think? I always thought maybe Maureen Lipman would have been great at the time. Oh, yes, very much so, but maybe a bit too smart for Doomy. I actually met Maureen Lipman, believe it or not. Wow. She bumped into me in a queue at the Royal, the Royal Academy, the Royal Society. <laughs> so the book is really good. And get out of my way. 
You're still flustered. <laughs> and so, in space, above the Gulf of Mexico, Space Shuttle Columbia is a hit with local meteorites, and its engines are hit. Worse, Houston warns them they're heading into a meteor storm proper. For pity's sake, get those engines repaired. My only US accent is my only US accent. Sorry, Dave. <laughs> But down on Earth, a real disaster as Doomlord Vec comes second in the Doomlord Lookalike contest to George Potts of Ipswich, whose face is admittedly more removable. (laughs) I did like the gag. Removing my mask might be difficult. Doomlord Vec is such a wag. (laughs) One thinks that if Doomlord Zill had been in the room, George Potts' life would be very much shorter from here on. Hmm... Vic consoles himself with a turn on the dance floor with Mrs. Souster, but at the bar, <laughs> get a room, you guys. <laughs> but at the bar, a crowd has gathered round the tally, and he sees the stricken shuttle slipping off to the gents. Vic sets his energizer to teleport and vanishes to the gents' laboratory. <laughs> In Columbia's cockpit, its crew prepare to meet their maker as the meteor storm appears. But then, so does Doomlord. Energizer to disintegrate. And he picks off the oncoming storm using his ring to shield the stricken shuttle from the frankly inevitable deadly debris. But external cameras reveal their saviour and a grateful Earth witnesses Doomlord in action. Job done. Vec beams. Greetings. Hooten heck. And once again affirms his role as humanity's saviour. Don't you know. (laughs) (laughs) But first Columbia's going nowhere. Then we're still dead meat? No. Perhaps there is another way. Doomlord, of course, remembers that the Death Lords had to get to Earth somehow and must have the Death Lord ship parked nearby. He attempts to summon the Death Lord ship, but it doesn't respond. It's not orbiting Earth. <laughs> Computer says no. Yeah, and nor is it on Earth due to uh, the Death Lord's code of not actually landing on the planet that they uh, mean to uh, do their business on. He sets his ring to the dark side of the moon. The other Pink Floyd albums are available. <laughs> and finds its prize, the Death Lord ship waiting in the darkness. He enters the ghost ship, sitting into a command chair to start things rolling. And manacles snake their way around his arms and legs. They are bonded Noxium, trapping the alien. And on a nearby screen, the visage of the Death Lords appear. Traitor Vec. The fact that you are viewing this means that you have defeated us and seized our ship. But know you this, even death does not end the sacred duty of the Order of Assassins. You are now the captive of our ship. You will be conveyed to Nox before the Dread Council itself to stand trial for your crimes. The ship streaks off, leaving Earth unprotected and once again under sentence of death. In time, the Death Lord ship reaches the benighted Nox. A puzzled security team board the craft looking for Death Lords, but finding instead the killer. Vic's energizer ring is confiscated. He is chained and taken to the Dread Council deep within the planet's bowels. Vic denies nothing. Yes, I disobeyed. Yes, I killed. But I did it only to protect the human race. He beseeches the Hooded Tribunal to allow him to provide proof, and after some probably muffled deliberations, the council grant Vic one time unit to prepare his so-called proof. And in a grim, skull-decorated dungeon, our hero prepares his brief. One time... 
Sorry, just just between briefs and rings. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think we ever find out how long a time unit passes. Um, well, it can't be too long because, you know, the guys on the space shuttle are still twiddling their thumbs. Quite, quite. One time unit passes and Vec returns to the chamber where the council present their verdict. Earth shows promise, its sentence of death is raised. But Vec's own sentence remains. I have achieved my only goal. I have saved the race I have come to love. I am ready to die. Next week, judgment on Doomlord. Wow, full marks to Heinzel because it just looks so great. Mm. The Noxian security guards even have pants. <laughs> the Noxian security guards have, have sort of visored helmets and they don't look like your typical Doom Lord. The Dread Council are drawn for the first time and there's sort of variety in their masks as well. It's all looking pretty strong in the design aspects. And nice renditions of the photo story models of the ships and for the Noxian surface and things. I, I note, notice the Doom Lords are the self-professed guardians of the galaxy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, under those masks, there might be a rocket raccoon and one of them might say, oh, I am Groot, who knows? But yes, yeah, so much is happening after the wheels spinning a bit at the tail end of the Death Lord story. It's really kicking along. Yeah. I was surprised to have a bit more Noxian world building this early on. Mm. But we've got it. And I'm grateful. One other thing is, I, I did make a note that uh, Doomlord does get a bit Shakespearean with poor Mrs. Souster quoting Julius Caesar. So he's definitely not after her for her Elizabethan poetry knowledge then. <laughs> speaking of classic literature. Well, I was going to say, speaking of standing your ground, Peter, <laughs> it's The Fists of Danny Pike, story by D. Spence, art by Jim Burns. Previously on Danny Pike, young Liverpudley and heavyweight Danny has taken on the American up-and-comer Nate Fowler and scored a 15-second knockout in the ring. Watching from the commentary box, Sugar Ray Robertson notes that world champion and plot botherer Alvin Sharkey (laughs) should be worried right now. After his win, Danny is called by love interest Jane Ashley, who stayed up late to hear the results on the radio. No, I don't believe in pay-per-view either, Jane. She's a keeper. (laughs) And trainer Arthur reckons that now Danny's back focused on the fighting game. This girl could be an asset. But no time for romantic ruminations. The next day, the team meet up with Abe Shapiro to line up the next bout. This time, with infamous dirty boxer Animal Haynes, the Georgia Mauler. A fighter so dangerous, even Sharky's been avoiding him. The contract for the fight is signed, and Danny meets the taciturn and sulky Haynes. And, Hain, and Abe warns that Heinz, the Heinz, no, Heinz, 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 And Abe warns that Heinz knows every trick in the book and that Danny will not only have to beat him, but beat him well. Training starts in earnest with a quick training montage before Arthur switches, to, switches his routine and gets Danny sparring against two opponents to improve his footwork and avoid getting bulldozed into a corner. Days of grueling punishment continue, and finally, the day of the fight arrives in Haynes' hometown of Atlanta, with his own Dixie band heralding the arrival of the caged animal. Mm, Danny so wonders if God. he's bitten off more than he can chew. They do play the pretty large photos on the Facebook page, people. Mm. There's a fight fee of $200,000, and Danny's so sure he's going to have to earn every cent of it. Mm-hmm. With a crowd roaring for blood, Haynes steps into the ring and the fight begins. Danny's training pays off, and for three rounds he dodges and dances around Haynes' clumsy attacks. 
but in round four, as Danny is pressing his advantage with some surgically precise strikes, he slips on some water in the ring and Haynes gets him against the ropes. You're mine now, Limey, and Danny is jabbed in the eye. Oh. Before Danny, who's now blinded, can work his way free, Haynes let loose a barrage of brutal blows before landing a headbutt on his flailing opponent. There. Mm. Now bleeding, Danny fights on through sheer instinct and makes it to the bell. In the interval, trainer Lyle manages to rinse out his eye and close the cut. Arthur warns Danny not to lose his temper, but the young boxer replies, I haven't lost it. I'm just flaming mad. <laughs> and straight from the bell, Danny starts coldly and clinically taking the animal down. Jabs, blocks, evades and punches. He makes the big man look like he's a clown. Until finally, with a dynamite present from England, Heinz goes down <laughs> for the count. Danny Pike wins! Yay! Next time, I'll take Pike and five more dead than alive. <laughs> that was a good one. Really good stuff. Um, yeah, yeah, as you as you allude to, they, they possibly lay the trail on a little bit thick in casting Haynes as the villain. Yeah, there's probably some imagery there that might not be seen these days. Oh, I, I again, I don't know if it was a stereotype of the time, but all the American boxers are black, and so is Alvin Sharkey. But that may have been representative of the American boxing circuit at the time. I don't know. I'm thinking more of sort of him being brought onto the stage in a great big cage. And, uh, yeah. I think they're, they're pulling up the fact that he's an animal, not because of any racial issue. Well, who knows? I've mean, <laughs> got to be very careful at this, this point in time. Yeah, but yeah. Because he's actually a, a, an incredibly dirty fighter. Yeah. Um, it's complicated. It's, it is complicated. It's good stuff. There is a risk of it becoming Fight of the Month Club. Mm. But, you know, we are reading it wrong, doing lots of episodes all at once. Look, I, th- I think you've, you've just got to roll with that sort of thing because this mm. is what we had with Thunderbolt and Smokey as well. It is part of the structure of a sports-based comic strip. Yeah. And the Eagle Reader probably would have been a lot more forgiving if they were a Roar of the Rovers fan as well. Possibly, yeah. I, I did miss it at the time doing the summary, but it's a sign of the times that in the earlier parts of the story, all the reporters have to rush off to pay phones to ring in their copy. Yeah. And Jane is listening to the fight on the radio, which is just quite a little retro touch. You forget what the world was like in 84. Yeah, it's pre-Sky Days. Yeah. No one has a satellite dish on, this, on their roof yet. No, no, but that allows you to keep up with the international news, Peter. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of which, News Team by Alan Hibden and I have a confession to make, Dave. Yeah. We started a new story in uh, issue 107, last episode, yep. with a new artist and I didn't notice. So Mia Maximakolpa, Jose Ortiz has been replaced by Louis Bermejo Rojo. Rojo. Oh. Yes. Now, this artist who draws as uh, Bermejo or Bermejo drew Hero the Spartan for the Old Eagle. Uh, and oh, um, also Johnny okay. Future, who, of course, well, we covered briefly in the uh, Smash special. Obviously not drawn by him then. Uh, he did pass okay. away in 2015. But working solidly in the 1980s, pretty adaptable style. And as I say, I didn't actually notice no, the join. I, I, I can't compare most of his work because he's not been a re- Eagle regular, but it's seamless. Really? I think the only thing that I've noticed is that uh, Jerry's eyebrows are just a little bit bushier 
in this. <laughs> yeah, but that's that's the nature of using your old uh, your, your old photos on your Tinder profile, which yeah. is, he's, he's always doing on the front of the episode. Yeah. So, news team. News team, as you recall, are stuck in the Himalayan kingdom of Muristan, which is undergoing something of a coup. A coup. Um, as the military round up coup, in silence... Man, <laughs> as the military round up and silence the foreign press, Jerry and company spot a satellite transmitter station on a nearby hill. It's a long climb, so they open Rat's special red box, which contains ropes, guns, grappling hooks, tear gas, and masks. So they're ready for war, or possibly to be Batman. Sorted. That red box is, is sort of like a portable hole. <laughs> so, what do I want? <laughs> it's in here. It always contains the things they need. What's in the red box this week, rats? <laughs> a rat's bag and a tin of beans. <laughs> so it's a long climb, but a reluctant rat is literally pushed up the mountain and they reach the top. I do love this. There's a nice little gag in there. The only climbing I've ever done was small-time burglaries before I met you. Just think of this as a particularly large house. <laughs> Certainly wasn't social climbing. Um, <laughs> the station is behind a guarded electric fence. Once the coast is clear, CB neutralises the fence, giving her something to do. Um, the inside guards get the old, does this rag smell a bit like chloroform to you trick? <laughs> tear gas takes down the control room staff. Um, guys, I don't think that's how tear gas actually works. And news team is in business. Jerry broadcasts to the world, and as coup leader Khan looks on helplessly from the royal throne room, a combined Indian and Chinese jet force backing the king fly over. Ah, 1980s. <laughs> the coup is over. <laughs> Fancy that, Dave. Indian and Chinese forces working together. I do wonder, did anyone check out the, the middle of nowhere transmitter station for any lost episodes of Doctor Who Phil Morris style? Yeah. <laughs> of course. Of course. Well, no, because the, the new team have saved us from a reign of terror. Maybe episode <laughs> six. Nice. Next week. Hank Duran of Satellite TV Los Angeles wants News Team in to cover the Trans-Saharan Rally. It's a new thing. But News Team arrive late. Lots of other News Teams are there. And they've all got all the good spots. So what are they going to do? It's not the only new thing, Peter. What is? Art swaps again. It's now P. Gascoigne. It's going to be out. Get out! <laughs> Sorry. Gaz is doing the art in this one. <laughs> well, not Gazza, but... There's a, a peak Gascoigne doing the art for the Sahara story. Oh, I give up. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where we stop. The other um, <laughs> Amstor computer. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, what to do? Jerry figures there's only one way to cover the race, and that's to join the race. So, of course, they have no car, so Rats is sent down to... Um, Honest Abdul's war surplus vehicles in mint condition, it says on the side. <laughs> Sorry, Fox. <laughs> and I'm not saying it's Nazis. But... No. <laughs> and comes back with a half track. I had a model of those in about 1984 or 5. As did I. They are oh. way cool. It's not actually race standard, but Jerry pulls the publicity card and next day the race kicks off in Marrakesh, complete with news team very much bringing up the rear. The satellite phone rings and it's the sponsor. Duran wants race coverage, not a travelogue. So Jerry checks the rules. Yep, no route is outlawed so long as they hit all the turnaround points. So 
off to a short cut across the sandy deserts it is. But en route and back on the road, our heroes in a half-track spy... Nice. <laughs> Thank you. Spy another team being held up by rebels from a neighbouring country. Uh, they're being uh, shaken down for their money. So, what do you scream as you're driving your half-track there? Uh, I'm so sorry, Fox. <laughs> Africa Corps to the rescue. We're not saying it's Nazis, but... It's always bloody Nazis. <laughs> the half-track rams the rebel vehicles, and a flare in the gas tank leaves them stranded. News team free the held-up racers who leave without even offering an interview. Next, a sandstorm hits the race, and all the competitors are bogged in and lost in the dust. Except news team, who realise they're closing in on the finish line. They pass the leader, which is stopped with engine trouble. And Rats thinks they've got the win in, but Jerry won't let him finish the race. That's not News Team's job. And so, later, they cover the finish from the other side of the line. Can Rats at least take the half-track home with them? No. No. (laughs) (laughs) Photos on the Facebook page. (laughs) New story. The new artist. Oh, God. (laughs) Banjo again, it's okay. Okay, okay. Bruce Thompson of Cable News Melbourne sends news team walkabout to Sydney to cover an official visit by Chinese government officials for a defence conference. Ah, the 80s, Dave. <laughs> Did you just say an offence conference? Ah, <laughs> uh, probably. Shall I do it again? No, all the cable news info, the way it pops up with the, the voices and the... the it just reminds me of the old Carmen Sandy. <laughs> While jostling among the throng during the walkout by the Chinese leader, Kurt climbs onto a kiosk for a better angle and sees a sniper, an Aussie sniper, who takes out Kurt's camera and trains his rifle on the leader until Jerry knocks the target out of harm's way and cops a diplomatic action to the back of the neck for his troubles. Recovering in hospital, the team discover Jerry's been sent a telegram warning him to stop getting in the way, and as they read it, his bedside vase explodes under a sniper shot. The contract now on Jerry. Ooh. <laughs> Next time, a trap to catch a killer. Um, Jerry does get a free invite to China for any news interview he wants to do. I wonder if that's still valid. <laughs> I wonder if that's still a tempting prospect. That's news team. That's news team. The action pumps along nicely. and The two episode chunks, although the way we've our episodes have sort of fallen, we, we don't quite get mm, too nicely. Complete. We might have to fiddle the books next time. But it lets them get away with anything, really. Some of the team are lacking stuff to do sometimes, but it's not like Crow Street level of character doldrums. I did like the idea that CB is their tech specialist. Yeah. Just would be nice if that actually went somewhere. But um, yeah. Do you think she's part tech specialist because her initials are CB? I suspect it's one of those happy accidents. Mm. And BJ's friend's a bear because, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was the 80s. It was the 80s. <laughs> Speaking of stories changing artists and plots all the time, mm. it's the hamster computer. Ah, hamster. So the story is the Phantom Pilot, story number 19257. Programmed by Daniel Toole of Somerset. So sad. Story by Keith Armstrong. Art by Jay Stokes. 
A test pilot flying a Harrier jump jet through the rem a remote valley in the wilds of Scotland nearly collides with a vintage Spitfire that appears out of nowhere. The pilot ejects and his plane crashes into a hillside, but the Spitfire is nowhere to be seen. Later the pilot CO tells him of the story of a phantom flyer, a Spitfire from the war that crashed into the Glen. The ghost plane has been seen several times over the years, but this is the first crash. Keen for the pilot not to lose his nerve, they put him straight back out into the pl into a plane. Probably not a good idea, but hey. Mm. Just as an air display Spitfire is taking off from the other end of the runway. Unlikely. <laughs> it's only a ghost. I'm going to fly straight through it. Da, da, da. Not bad. Two pages. Not the pick of the lot, but Amster has done worse. I guess credit to them for not telling the story through the explosion. And you're sort of left with his thought, I'm going to do this. Yeah. I didn't get the Spitfire thing in the first read. It was just like, oh, oh, so, oh, so that's a Spitfire. So, <laughs> eh. Anyway, <laughs> enough about you. Let's talk about me. <laughs> I have The Thief in the Computer, which is story number 66783. The numbers are important. Programmed by Christopher Murray of West Yorkshire, but written by A Stone, art by John Cooper. By night, a thief enters a high-tech industrial secrets facility, unencumbered by guards and alarms. He only comes across a group of kids who are also wandering, unattended and unannounced. One of the kids heard about the place from his dad, who tells the story of Professor Holston, who was killed, leaving his great computer, the Amstor computer, standing alone in here. The four boys have come for a story, and they find the computer and watch its telly, and it tells the story... Uh, well, it tells a pirate story with uh, Black Bear the Pirate. Everybody's happy, but suddenly the screen changes to show the thief at work, cracking the safe of industrial secrets. There, they see themselves piling onto the man, the same man they saw wandering the corridors before. Then, the screen flackers back to Blackbeard. The thief, meanwhile, finishes his work and checks in on the kids, pretending to bust them for trespassing, but letting them off this time. Hang on, I love pirate stories. He joins the boys, who are alerted by the computer, and of course pile onto the thief, tie him up, and the ringleader calls his dad, who is head of security. As they go, the thief's left watching himself on the screen, over and over and over. Sorry? What? <laughs> yeah. What? Uh, um, okay. Distinct lack of phantom spitfires? So. <laughs> A distinct lack of anything, really. I, I, come on, Amster computer. That didn't even make sense. Even in ancient 1984, there is a television you can watch at home. Yeah, but they probably don't have too many pirate stories. I don't know. I do like the nod back to the Amstor computer's origin. There. Yeah, that's right, yes. There's a sort of a proto-13th floor aspect to it. Well, well actually, think, Peter, if you think about it, do you want to know the really scary thing? What's that? Pirates, but people pirating old stories from Eagle on a computer. Mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> from the ridiculous to the sublime. Yes. A taste of terror. Story number four three four nine eight. Programmed by James Brown. Wow. I feel good. Of Salisbury. <laughs> story by N. Allen. I wonder if that's a pun. Art mm. by John Stokes. A terrified man, Pete Pauly, is running down a moonlit Californian highway, screaming in terror, and he flags down a passing biker, desperate for help. 
Pete tries to explain what happened. His car had broken down in a deserted desert road. He saw some mysterious lights in the sky. Following them on foot, he finds a spaceship and its whip-wielding alien occupants who have captured some local hunters who will be taken back as cattle to the starving alien world to save it from starvation. Nice. Yes, these alien herdmasters plan to invade, round up humanity, and serve them with a side salad. It's a cookbook, Peter! This is Beach and Sal to serve mankind. Will the lone biker help save the world? Well, that depends, the figure says, removing his helmet, to reveal a horrible, razor-toothed, impished alien face. On how you taste! <laughs> Fan. Bloody testing. This one freaked me out as a kid. Yes. That, that, we talk about Scream and things in Scream. That face haunted my nightmares for weeks. Worse than any ghastly tale we've encountered. Yeah, how this escaped in Rimmer's desk for Scream is absolutely beyond me. It's an absolute cracker. Yeah. On point, every panel. And it's John Stokes who who, who done Terror of the Cats. So and it's, it's two pages. It's just... Yeah. It's beautiful. <laughs> it's up there with the, the top Amstel computer stories of all time, in my opinion. Mm, mm. And it's got that wonderful economy, but it's also you know a, a big enough scope that you could see this opening, a fantastic story about an alien invasion. Yep. It's, and mwah. half of the first page is a splash page of him running down a road. It's just amazing. <laughs> it's, it's, it's beautiful. Yeah, it is. The other thing is it draws on so much that's familiar. You know, there's the, the empty highway of close encounters. There's mm. the, uh, the nutter running towards the camera from invasion of the body snatchers. Mm. Mm. Uh, there's all of those things. And it still manages to uh, to shock. Lovely. Yeah, no, Lovely. It's, 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 it's... But, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but speaking of side orders, Peter. <laughs> Uncle Ben. A story that may not stick. Programmed by Richard Brunton of Cambridge, story number 800503, written by A. Stone, illustrated by uh, Nivio Zakara. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. First appearance in Eagle. Every year the King family holiday abroad, but on every occasion they spend a little extra time at the end of the holidays in Winkle Bay, Cornwall, so the King kids can visit Uncle Ben. Likely not really an uncle of theirs, but an old sailor who lives alone and could probably tell you stories that would melt your face. Time passes quickly as Uncle Ben, a master storyteller, fills the kids' heads. But he tells them one day to come back to his hut by seven. There's another very special story in store for you. Shut up. That night, on the stroke of seven, the two king kids arrive to see Ben's hut being robbed and the old man dead on the floor. The robbers set the hut on fire and leg it. It's a bad story so far. <laughs> the kids get the number of the robber's car and tell their dad, who goes to the police, who are incredulous. But the police inspector listens to their story and gets the registration number checked. 20 minutes later, two arrests are made. Mr King, though, is puzzled why the inspector is so quiet and mysterious about the whole case. The inspector leads King to the site of Uncle Ben's hut on the beach, long gone and cleared away. The fire happened five months ago. It had been Ben's final story, a story told from beyond the grave. Yeah. So these kids yeah. go off to a weird old bachelor's shack after dark to see his winkle. 
what? <laughs> I think we wave all of that away by yes. the human drama of it, but yeesh. We're talking about Scream 4. Is this one off the reject pile from Scream? It's just a wee bit kiddie for Eagle. It feels like an old Philistyle story, and it's it's not the two pages Amstel usual thing. It's about two and a half. It just seems a bit old-fashioned and feels like it might have been lifted from somewhere else. I don't know. It certainly doesn't bear a lot of thought. You know, you, mm. you arrive in the village, everybody knows that you come there every year, and no one says, oh, good to see you again. Oh, a few things have happened since you were here last. Mm. No, it's just a... Ooh. <laughs> Kids never existed. There you go. Speaking of seeing old-fashioned plot points coming a mile away, Peter. Indeed. Dan dear. Prisoners in space, maybe? Tom yeah, Tully, yeah. maybe? At thy... Ian Kennedy. I was going to say, you know, I was looking at my notes going, why have I written John Cooper? <laughs> uh, by Ian Kennedy. Previously on Dan Deere. On the alien planet... Evil alien overlord, the Mekon, has portrayed evil alien overlord, Lord Boehner, and stolen his reconstituted alien army idea, Operation Birth, creating several thousand combat-trained soldiers and turning on his erstwhile ally. Mm. As the Mekon's troops gun down Boehner's guards and the green menace himself blows the limbs off the giraffe squid alien like a vigilant schoolboy, that makes a nice cover, mm. Dan Deere legs it out through the door to freedom while no one's looking. The Mekon's Supertreme army awakes Tomb of the Cyberman style and are soon dispatched to recapture the wayward Dan Deere. Dan manages to handle one of his pursuers and steals a gun before bumping into maintenance droid and logic botherer Robo-1. <laughs> and our two unlikely heroes head off to free the other space captives while all-out war breaks out between the Treens and the indigenous squid alien people. And as the war rages on outside, lovely illustrations by Kennedy, Treen mm. troops move in to kill off the remaining human prisoners. But Dan and Robo-1 arrive at the last moment, all guns blazing to save the investigator crew, and the army of two gains three new recruits. Bane's people are being slaughtered, and the human's only hope is to free the space marines and get back to the troop vessel, the Magpie. Robo-1 deals fairly quickly with the robot door guarding the human troops, but as Dan and co enter the holding area, they are warned off, Come no closer, you can't save us! Then jets of flame lance down from the ceiling and create an impassable wall of fire. The troopers warn Dan that the trap is triggered by pressure plates on the floor. It's as easy as pie. <laughs> yes, and Dan quickly realises that hovering robot Robo-1 can ferry the prisoners over like a Havoc motorcycle stunt squad in human triangles <laughs> of twos, threes, fours and sevens, which is lucky because it's almost like they cannot even. Uh, <laughs> carry on. <laughs> Dan's impromptu army <laughs> then mugs a train platoon for their weapons and steals a train aircraft. The human escape is well underway. Next time, all aboard the Flying Saucer for Action Galore. Phew. The younger sister of um, a James Bond girl, I believe. <laughs> finally, <laughs> finally, stuff is happening. Is that the end of Prisoners in Space, 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 Space? Well, no, because they've still got to get into Space, 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 Space. Uh, okay. Lovely Kennedy Warzone art. Oh, it's a good month for Kennedy. It's yeah, really, it is. really nice stuff. Nice colouring as well. Yeah, yeah. But most of the action's happening in the background to Dare's story. But that's a bit like the old Dan Dare, I think. Lots of spectacle and colour happening parallel to the adventure, but not yeah. essentially directly in it. 
And yeah, and actually his daring do is a little bit pedestrian, sort of yes. sneak out while the, the, the more interesting battle's going on, as you yes. say. And then just sort of sneak in and save the prisoners at the last moment just by being there conveniently and shooting the, the firing squad. Yes, yeah. But this is this feels like the proper story and everything else up to this point, like months of it, has been a very long introduction. Yeah, with lots of death sports. Uh, it's, it's good, though. It's happening. It's all happening. Hmm. Speaking of it all happening, yeah. regular features. That's where it's happening. Covers this time, we have an issue 108, Bane or Getting Zapped by the Mekong. Mm. Uh, in issue 109, traditionally Dandia thumping a tree. Mm-hmm. Uh, in issue 110, some trends turning nasty. And yep. in issue 111, Dan facing a wall of fame. F- flame, flame. So what's your Dandia cover of the month? Well, just to just put an extra thing in the mix, there is only one eagle collection this month, but it's News Team. Yay! All looking a bit thuggish, to be honest. Their CV is looking pretty <laughs> femme fatale there, but no, my pick has to be Bane or Getting Zapped. Yes, yes, that just swung. It was either going to be 108 or 109 mm. for me. Lovely composition in 109. Yeah. Actually, in my notes, no, I actually swung towards 109. Maybe because it's Dare on the, on the front. Mekon's an, an easy win. Yeah. But Dare saying, you know, get me out of this Mekon hellhole and variations thereof. Yeah. That's a winner too. Speaking of winners, inside the issues is the hotly touted Heinz Invaders badge and the Action Man sticker album scheme. Scheme not available to overseas readers. Yes. And a write-up for the upcoming London Marathon. London Marathon not available to overseas readers. <laughs> <laughs> what I wish was available to overseas readers was my ad of the month, which was Grandstand's BMX Flyer. I LZ saw that game. and I thought of you, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, Software Scene has lots of computer games, not just that one. Uh, yeah. Manic Miner for the Commodore 64, and Ooh. a game based on Raymond Briggs's The Snowman, and actual Pac-Man, noting as we have to date the number of pack clones that are out there somewhat diminishes the appeal yeah but that was the atari version finally it took ages to get to home pcs well probably licensing and stuff that the the knockoffs didn't have to worry about my mm. pick for ad of the month is actually for a game but not the game you're looking at it's the patrick moore's astronomy game <laughs> which i think looks very intriguing and i've, I've googled a little bit about it but can't find much but it seems a bit full-on slightly even rpg-ish but i'll give that a go Fair enough. <laughs> Other ads include the uh, Fresh Minty Egg Competition, which is a variant on the classic Spot the Ball competition. And yes. if you have it, if you have too many Fresh Minty Eggs, McLean's will pay you one pound <laughs> to brush your teeth. Dave, there was only one ad that I looked at and thought of you, and it's the Weetabix t-shirt. Oh. <laughs> you wear that while you're avoiding your titchy breakfast. <sighs> Although, speaking of t-shirts and other things, uh, apparently there were 3,000 plus entries for the Issue 100 t-shirts and other competitions, which seems like a stunning result, although none of them were available to overseas readers. Ah, but I think one, at least, is owned by a friend of the podcast. Yes, it is. Yes. Friend of the podcast, Richard Sheaf. Yes. But not only that, also in the Lucky Six this month, we have another friend of the podcast, a shout out to Paul Walton who um, ah. managed to get his young cherubic face into the Lucky Six, which is more than can be said for the various Gurners, Joanne Edwards and Trevor Fish. <laughs> I am looking at you. <laughs> Although they use their real names, I'm not sure about a reader in issue 109. Poor Algernon. <laughs> <laughs> Never taken seriously. Although, yeah, yeah. High poor, high rich. 
Yes. <laughs> Sorry, Fox. Yeah. Speaking of eventually did get to New Zealand, Easy TV talks about Tucker's Luck, which I vaguely mm. remember actually being on the TV. I was a Tucker Jenkins fan, but that one didn't quite stick in the memory so much. No, and, and of course, he later went on to EastEnders and the rest is history. But obviously, they have to put a bit of a, a Crow Street Cop reference in there. Well, yes, although uh, Eagle will sort of do a Tucker's Luck variant in the far future. Ah, I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah, looking forward to that. Watch this space, readers. Yes. Ernie is rendered by ZX81 <laughs> in issue one there. That's quite scary. Not that way. Oh, no, no. That type of art is starting and it makes me feel very old is what I mean. I can hear it being drawn. I can hear the Z, 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 Z <laughs> of the thermal printer. Wow. But speaking of art with a metallic robotic bent... Yes, issue 108 features the trilogy of epic evil, an expertly rendered Doom Lord Dalek and Garfield the Cat. <laughs> and also, I think towards issue 110 or 11, there is a sketch of the uh, long-lamented Damon and a yeah. dandier alien from the previous story. It's weird that they don't actually name Damon at all. They just sort of say, yeah, there's a picture. Yeah, I, I wonder if, if they've sort of forgotten or something. But yes, it's de that's definitely obviously what it's meant to be, as opposed yeah. to the references to going to visit the Twin Towers. Which, actually, mm. talk about Wembley, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was the 80s. Issue 111 has the horrific image of Ernie the Eagle uh, not wearing his helmet, and uh, he's bald. Um, it does not improve things. Moving swiftly on. Speaking of moving swiftly... It's uh, everyone's favourite dishonest cop, One-Eyed Jack. Story, uh, not John Wagner. There is a note on the Albion website that by this point we're actually into Notorious GFD. Ooh, right. by John Cooper. Hip hip hooray, it's Jerry Finley Day. It's 2am in a warehouse on the Hudson River and an elderly night watchman is murdered as he makes a desperate phone call to the cops. But as the fur thieves load up to make their getaway, in bursts one-eyed Jack McBain in the mid of the 84th precinct. The villains use their truck as a battering ram to burst through the police cordon, but not before Jack manages to gun down one of the stragglers. Willie Novak and beat cop Weber unmask the criminal corpse. It's barely more than a kid. A juve hood. A dime a dozen on the mean streets of New York. But, but Jack flies into a rage. Kicking the other cops aside, he knows the kid. It's his nephew, Nicky! <gasps> we have a montage of flashbacks to kindly two-eyed Uncle Jack giving the kid his first train set, <laughs> teaching him to play baseball, etc. But Jack's forlorn family flashbacks are interrupted by the arrival of his raging, ever-loving sister Ruth, Nicky's mum, who quite rightly blames trigger-happy Jack for the death of her son and abandoning his own blood in his myopic pursuit of justice. Jack quits the force. Ooh, we've been waiting for this. Then three weeks later, Willie Novak and his new partner find a deadbeat Jack McBain robbing a jewellery shop. Jack escapes, but the manhunt is on. Finally! Next issue is the city's police forces mobilise. Jack robs the city's biggest fur company and is holed up in an empty warehouse waiting. Suddenly, two very non-police goons burst in and drag Jack to meet Big Harry the head henchman of this heinous hide-heisting operation. They warn Jack off further felonies in their fur franchise, but Jack convinces them he could be an asset and gets them to call Mr. Big with his offer. The big boss is unimpressed, 
and gets his goons to shoot off one of Jack's fingers as a lesson. Holy cow. Left finger pinky, possibly? We don't see any blood. Mm. Well, actually, we don't see any blood, but maybe there is some somewhere else because of an issue we're going to come across before the end of this run of stories. Read on. Unless Jack used a dummy hand. <laughs> Could have been. Yeah, he, he does look pretty sore. Jack is let loose, but he has memorised the big boss's phone number and that night tracks him down to a mansion on West Boulevard. Jack stakes out the joint and spots some of the stolen furs from the night Nicky nixed it before busting in and literally single-handedly taking down all the desperados. Single-handedly, nine-fingeredly, one-eyedly. He's a man of many parts. Disappearing Jack. Chief Corellia leads the police raid to clean up the mess. It was all a ruse by Jack to catch the crooks who corrupted his kinsmen. But Jack won't go back to the force. He's quit for good. Or knowing Jack, for bad. So what next? Jack gets a new banner in issue 110 as he walks the streets as an average Joe to one of his old informers informs him he has a message from an old army comrade, Dave Stockwell. Don't trust those Daves. (laughs) We flash back to Jack's time in Nam where Wounded Jack was saved by Stockwell. So, you know, there's a bit of history there. Yeah, I wasn't there. I was never there, man. (laughs) The men meet up in a downtown bar. Dave has stayed with the military and is now a full colonel working against an underground paramilitary army of fanatics hell-bent on overthrowing the world governments and he wants Jack's help. <laughs> Do they have the logo of a cloud with a little lightning bolt underneath it at all? Not yet. Basically it's smog with a different hat on. A red baseball hat with AOR written on it, which is the Army of Revolutionaries. Um, right. Yeah. Eighty-four. Mm-hmm. This was even before then. This is a reprint. <laughs> Jack is unconvinced, but Sockwell invites him home to meet the family and discuss it further. But when they arrive at the secluded hunting lodge in the middle of nowhere, the place is swarming with armed gunsmen and AOR death squad. Stockwell crashes the car, evading the terrorist gunfire, and the villains make their getaway. Stockwell's family have been killed and edited out of the page. <laughs> and. As the distraught soldier calls for backup, he triggers a booby trap in the phone and dies in the blast. Later, Jack reports to General Mantis, Sockwell's boss in Washington, he's going to war with the AOR. Hmm. Jack has joined the MIA, the Military Intelligence Agency, and using their resources, tracks the hit squad's helicopter to a private airfield and then tracks down the goons to a hangar where they're getting dressed up in military uniforms and have a handy armoured scout car available. But then Jack is rumbled and is nearly caught before a mysterious figure emerges from the shadows to save him. It's Kalucci, another MIA agent sent by Mantis to help him out. And as the AOR scout car ploughs through the hangar wall, the two men set off in hot pursuit. They chase the rogue soldiers to a nearby valley that has been closed for army war games. Jack avoids the military cordon and commandeers an anti-tank gun and blows the traitorous terrorists away before gunning the remaining survivor down in a fit of vengeful rage. If the AOR has infiltrated the US military, this is bigger than anyone expected. And if Jack joins the fight, he'll do it on his own terms, without a rule book. Next time, into the terrorist training camp. <sighs> it escalated quickly. If you have a problem, if no one else can help, and if you can find him, Maybe you can hire one-eyed night Felix Jack. And he'll shoot you. <laughs> <laughs>
So yeah, as we've discussed in previous episodes, this sort of mirrors the point where One-Eyed Jack ceased to be in Valiant, mm. and as Valiant merged into battle, and it became a war procedural rather than a police procedural. Weird sort of shift in focus. And that apparently is when Jerry Finley Day took over the writing. Mm. Interesting enough, if you manage to track down the battle issue where this all happened, the murdered family are all in shot and they have been edited out in Eagle, which makes me wonder if the stuff in Valiant were getting his finger blown off, which I assume is the stuff that's in the reprint from the Treasury of British Comics is a bit mm. more graphic than what we're seeing in the old Eagle issues because it would have been about just the right side of the action takedown. Mm. There's nothing in the Death of Valiant book to give any ideas there? Not that I'm aware of, but... I'll do a bit more research, but there will be photos on the Facebook page, people, of what I've found. Yeah, good good sleuthing, Dave. But the other thing is, it's interesting, this has also changed how Jack works, because it's like Judge Dredd and Death, and they were talking about it with the Judge Dredd movies. Your anti-hero could be more heroic when the villains are even a bit more crazy and off, mm. an OTT. Jack's shenanigans suit this less real world of James Bond dredger stuff than a cop story where he's meant to be upholding the public good. Mm, mm. Yeah, what what do you think? You're not usually a fan of One-Eyed Jack, so... No, but like I say, I was sort of waiting for this swing in the story mm. for a while now. Hopefully it's a shot in the arm. Um, <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> yes, handy. Can't quite put my finger on it. Um, but it is, as, as you allude to, um, it's a change in writer. And one thing we can say about Jack is that earlier stories had all the economy and the wit of John Wagner. Mm. So under Jerry Finley Day, we'll see. We'll see. But yeah, I, I appreciate the difference. Vive la difference. Shades of a soft reboot. I'm thinking The Suicide Squad versus Suicide Squad yes. at this stage. Yes. But speaking of strange paramilitary organisations, Peter. Indeed. It's Mannix in Enemy Hands. Script by Keith Law, Alan Grant, and art by Carmona. If you're tuning into Mannix for the first time in this issue, then we boy, you missed a ton. Super robot <laughs> agent Mannix has been captured and reprogrammed by enemies of civilization, Smog. But head of British intelligence, O, has unleashed a new Mannix, easily the third of them now at least, and together the Manises have fought on a train, and New Mannix has won. Manises is probably the plural of Mannix. Deprogramming the fallen counter-agent, New Mannix absorbs his enemy's intel on smog. Their base, their leader, their agents, their targets, then rips the circuits from its chest. Hopefully this time with a bit of firewall from Licious Code. Yes. For you, the war is over, Charlie. O arrives, and Mannix debriefs him, amidst cracking some dad jokes. New Mannix is stuck in joke mode. Joke mode engaged, sir. <laughs> Mannix has become a real boy. A real annoying boy. <laughs> but mercifully, not for long. The damaged module replaced, a new faceplate riveted on, and smog wide open. This is your next task, Mannix. You will pose as a smog robot, find the traitors, and we'll crush them. Next issue, Operation Rat's Nest. And it's a new story. Mannix arrives at the Smythes, who were the traitors from earlier in this arc, the posh couple. Mrs. Smythe is quick with the cyanide capsule as he arrives, but Felix Smythe, her husband, isn't, and Sir Orville takes over. Later, a plane load of naval commandos meets Mannix and receives their orders. 
there to go to the Caribbean island of Toka and find the smog base beneath it. First to recover the submarine Conga. Oh, we're reaching far back now, Dave. <coughs> then to capture smog director Gretel Herzog and to destroy the entire base. The next morning, a British ship reaches sight of Toka and Mannix and a squad take to the submarine rovers to capture the rat's nest. And in a nearby fissure, smog awaits. The smog aquamen shoot their harpoons at Mannix, but their weapons are ineffective, and his squad dispatch the aquamen effortlessly and without mercy. Meanwhile, in England, Sir Orville rounds up civil servant Humphrey, who is boss of the Smythes and member of the 1984 group, which appear to be a splinter group allied with smog. They find his files and more intel. Back under Toka, the Congo is located and its smog guards dealt with. But a counterattack arrives. The rats begin to bite back. Finally, the gantry is filled with smog troops and Mannix hurls a grenade among them. He finds a commander, Baird, to work alongside and together they take out the guns and storage sheds of the enemy trained on the Congo's only exit. Gotta watch those sheds. Mannix hurls another grenade, then leaps a shed in a single bound to take out a gun nest. In her control room, Director Herzog watches and surmises their Mannix is lost. But a very kind of British intelligence to send another. Issue the Sonic Disruptors. <laughs> <laughs> and as Conga lines up the expert, smog boats set a collision course to ram the sub. And that's Mannix for the sub. <sighs> very, very one, two, one, two, one, two. Yes, I was going to say there's so little to say because the action is always moving. Someone's really been watching far too much Spy Who Loved Me or Thunderball. <laughs> yes. But it just keeps ramping up, yeah. and we've still got a good few episodes to go. I have to say, the earlier idea of Mannix posing as the smog robot yep. didn't really sort of feature in the plans. No, I think that was only for the Smythes. I have to ask you, in the bit with the Smythes, mm. what is Luca Mancino doing in the bottom of the first page? They've got all these British agents and this guy with a book by hat in it. So they going, you're, you're not meant to be here. You're, you're a couple of stories late. Maybe it's a ghost. Ooh. Maybe. Photos on the Facebook page. Maybe that hand has travelled. I enjoyed this month. As you say, things are moving. You know, we, we've not exactly been sort of treading water with Mannix, but this at least sort of gets us back to the A-plot yep. and nods back to the Conga and Smog's secret underwater base and all of mm. that. That's all, it's all quite welcome. It's like Dan Deere. After some sort of... It wasn't uninteresting, but it's just all of a sudden someone's lit the fuse and cranked it up again. Yeah. It makes me think one of the things we didn't really talk about in the regular features is I know there's been a bit of a... Um, an action man slash action force mm. advertising campaign going on in the pages of Battle and Eagle at the same time. I think both comics have albums, mm. sadly not available to overseas readers. But it did seem to me that Battle was being advertised a fair bit. And I was thinking, is this a sign that maybe readership's down in some of the other titles? And maybe that also cranks the whip for up in the stories a bit in Eagle. But maybe I'm drawing strands together that aren't necessarily there, only in hindsight. It's possible that all of a sudden everything seems to have a kick in the pants, but they do feel natural for the stories. Mm. And interestingly enough, it all seems to tie in with the change with One-Eyed Jack, which can't be a result of any other action because it's a reprint. Mm. Yeah, it's natural. So I think it's just a happy coincidence of all sorts of things coming together at once. Yeah, yeah. Who knows? Seeing a pattern that's not there. Answers on a postage. Indeed, or on the Facebook page. Yeah. 
Speaking of tropical island adventures, Peter. Oh, yes. Why not? Creveo Cale Collegio. Story <laughs> by Fred Baker. Art by Rix Archer. <laughs> Previously on Crow Street Comp. Pugilistic prognosticator Clobber Gates has persuaded his pals that he has the powers of prediction and proceeds to purvey peaks into the post-present for poultry pennies a peak. Phew. Yes. See all, know all, Gates. For 20p a go, predicts Paul Carstairs is going to have a long trip, like the school holiday to Spain, and an impending minor accident. What a portent. One that Clobber will be happy to provide if required. <laughs> but a distracted Paul walks into a door anyway, self-fulfilling that particular prophecy. Emboldened, Clobber claims he senses a malign evil force haunting the halls of the school. And then Miss Bud, Queen of Dragons, cuts him <laughs> on the back of the head and tells him to stop sprouting such nonsense. Yeah. She has the travel documents for them to travel to sunny Spain for their holidays. Yay! And uh, Miss Bud and Mr. Babbitt will be their chaperones. Boo! <laughs> the kids discuss the upcoming holiday and poor Creeper is creeped out by the potential cost of the trip and clothes and spending money, etc. But Clobber tells him it's their holiday and they'll enjoy it regardless. The holidays come, and the kids catch a flight to Barcelona. Baby Bristow is scared of the plane, especially after Clobber tells him that they might have a lunar driver for a pilot. <laughs> and after an impromptu geography lesson, the plane lands, and les studentes catch an autobus to La Costa, Metrologica Escocio! Oh, bless you. The kids get into their luxury hotel where Fatso Parsons mistakes a share handle for a light switch, Sokyo! How do you do that? How do you mistake a light bulb? Uh, not, uh. It was the 80s. It was the 80s. Yeah, they had running water and everything. Sugar Ray and Crackers Kent go out on the town and end up in the wrong room in the wrong hotel. Stupido! <laughs> I like this story. And Clobber and Creeper blag their way into jobs as golf caddies. And let me just say, mm. in a more serious note, as a sufferer of myelagic encephalomyelitis, I really do appreciate Clubber's I Love Emmy t-shirt. No. Well done, that man. <laughs> Meanwhile, Paul Carstairs and Bristow have lunch with Ms. Bud, while Boo Boo and Hot Lips have a splash around the pool and discuss Paul as a potential boyfriend. Clobber and Creeper's caddy and caper comes a cropper. They're forced to wade out into a pond so polluted it wipes all the letters off of Clobber's t-shirt looking <laughs> for lost balls. Not to be outdone, after some shenanigans with the frogman's gear in a crowded dining room, Sugar Ray and Crackers are kicked out of the wrong hotel. The next day, the class head out towards the mountains, Monte Blanco, Scotia, <sighs> where they venture into a grotty grotto, stalagmites, stalactites, and a hopeless lack of attention to health and safety as the stairway collapses under Clobber and Creeper and sends them tumbling into the abyss. Mm -hmm. Have you had an accident or injury that wasn't your fault? <laughs> Call evil shyster and flywheel. No win, no fee, no chance. <laughs> After a ten minute ordeal, the boys are rescued, but not before Clobber terrifies Creeper by suggesting they could be in a deep, dark hole, slowly filling up with torrents of water. But it's okay, he means well. Oh, Dave. <laughs> To their credit, the two shonkiest boys in class decide not to sue for damages because, well, they haven't been damaged, have they? Yeah. And they celebrate by chucking Sugar Ray into the pool. The next day, Sugars and Crackers Kent spend their day sunbathing. But haven't they been listening? 
it's Scotchio, mm. and they get badly sunburned. <laughs> Meanwhile, Clobber and Creeper see Mr. Babbitt sneak off and decide to follow, wearing super inconspicuous sombreros to keep off the sun. They shadow, no pun intended, their teacher to a casino and wait until Babbitt emerges sometime later looking miserable. But much lighter. <laughs> the boys confront him. Does he have a gambling problem? Next time, Bono Estente Butrus Butrus Gali. No, that's a person's weighty decision. Sminky binky. Um, yeah. <laughs> Look, I can't get my head around the suspicion that whenever a series is in trouble, certainly in TV land, they pack the cast off to a dodgy trip to Spain. Well, it's a bit further down my notes, but with this and the tramping trip last issue or episode, it's been a long time since we've been in actual school. Yes. <laughs> Are we running out of school stories? I wonder. Got much longer for um, Cross Street Comp? A uh, couple of months. Right, okay. Just asking questions. No, no, it's uh, not a silly one. We are in the dog days of Crow Street Comp. Although I did think it was interesting that the thing with Babbitt in the casino returns to some of the Crow Street Comp social realism that we so enjoyed in the early days of the series. Mm, there is that. There is that. The bit with the girls swimming and plotting was a bit weird, though. Yeah. Especially when it's followed up with some minor flirting in the grotto. Yeah. Yeah, I my eyes skipped over those panels pretty quickly. Oh, okay. But on the on the plus side, for all my silliness with the Far Show references, there is no streetwise goes to Spain stereotypes. You know, we we have elevated ourselves past that a little bit. Yeah, yeah. It's more in the, the comedy of ugly Brits abroad, really. Well, only two of them are, are, are fairly ugly. I mean, <laughs> and it's not Creeper and, and Clobber, surprisingly. One thing I did notice, and you'd mentioned it a couple of episodes ago, no Marge. Lady not appearing in the story. You know, yeah. The whole class is there to go on the holiday. Marge has vanished. How interesting. I'm sure you could retcon some interesting stuff into there with, with the social realism angle, but um, yeah, she has vanished. Have you seen this girl? Maybe dressed as an old woman. Moment's silence for forgotten character Marge. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> but speaking of getting away from it all, Peter... Indeed, our final story for this episode, The Brothers, by Scott Goodall, art by Van Nieu. Got a discovery. Finscale Dave is in the North Midlands. Ah, but are they in the south of the North Midlands? Answers <laughs> on the Facebook page. To the story. One day after their escape from Finscale Hospital, the press breaks the story of Peter Trent and his twin brother Bob, now a simian creature on the run. Actually, I was interested that one of the newspapers nicknames them the Gamma Twins, which, um... Uh, sounds like a wrestling team. Well, it sounds a bit like Glimmer Twins, which was a uh, sort of self-imposed nickname that Mick Jagger and Keith Richards had. Oh, okay. When they went into the sort of the record-producing lark for a while. I was wondering whether that was... What's that for? Now, as the local police inspector addresses the room of journalists, um, the Gamma Twins themselves hide out in an alley, leaving to find a nearby church with a jumble sale being prepared with a chance for some new, old clothes. With Bob's strength, they break in the back of the church and find some clobber. Then, Peter leads them to Fenscale Cemetery. Everything's Fenscale here, where the boy's parents are to be buried that day. From the branches of a nearby tree, they watch the cortege arrive, until Bob finally breaks and cries out for his mum. A panicking Peter tries to hold him back. 
and the boys wrestle in the, tre- in the tree limbs until Bob breaks free and runs to the black cars. The security agents are there too and have been expecting the boys. Halt or we fire! Bob pulls up some wrought iron grave fencing and flings it as he rushes them, but a bullet strikes his shoulder and the wounded boy leaps the wall to safety. Peter watches the burial resume by himself in hiding, breaking cover only at dusk to plant a rose on his parents' grave and swearing to find Bob again. Yeah. <laughs> they should have got the Death Lords Undertakers because they always get their man. <laughs> Elsewhere in town, a chemist is closing for the day when the bestial Bob bursts in looking for bandages for his wounded shoulder. The shop assistant faints dead away and as the chemist owner interrupts Bob, sweeping him out of the shop window before the mutated Moppet can do more damage. He recognises the boy from the paper's description and calls the police. Meanwhile, Peter wanders the streets looking for the wounded Bob, and as a police car races by, he follows it to the glass-domed roof of Fenscale's Victoria Hall, where Bob is scaling its heights, not sure why. The police warn him down from the fragile roof, but it's too late. Bob crashes through the glass, 15 metres above the wrestling wing below. But before he can make his full descent, Bob clings onto a nearby girder, and tries his luck on a lighting strut below that, but it and the strut don't hold, and Bob falls. Fortunately, his fall is broken by the ring below, and the lighting rig's fall is broken by Wild Willie Wilson. Ooh, brother! <laughs> Ella Conrad, wrestling! <laughs> the other wrestler, a tartan type named Meatface McFlannel, sounds a bit like Midface McNulty to me, but... Um, <laughs> We can assume he was not given that name by his parents. No. Here's the crowd calling for Bob to be caught. And it's on. Bob defends himself, punching well, but McFlannel, who has to be seen to be believed, pictures on <laughs> Facebook, hopefully. Um, <laughs> yes. Tartan shorts, sparring, and a beard the size of a rhododendron bush. He offers a forearm smash into the corner. Bob sees Peter in the auditorium and calls for help. But before he can escape, Meatface grabs him and readies the McFlannel backbreaker. Peach looks on. Don't let him do it, Bob. Use your new strength and fight back. It's our only chance. Next week, can Bob escape a broken back? Oof. How old is the kid supposed to be? Twelve? <laughs> They're not skulking in the shadows, really, are they? They're this sort of... No, I mean, of, of all the contrived way to sort of get him into a wrestling match, this is this is one. But it's yep. lovely art by Vanyo this yep. month. There are some panels where it almost looks like it's it's Dave Gibbons doing the artwork. It's very assured. He was always mm. really good in the hand, but his art here is a real strength. Yes. And I've got to say, he, the emotional element, which is pretty strong in this month, is is handled well by him as well as the the action so very happy it's, it's excellent the only other note i made where did peter get the jumble sound money from you wonder if the art was actually picking it up rather than putting it down and billy Connolly's dreaded ivan the terrible this is all i could think of. pretty much pretty with, with the, much. the flannel with yeah. a half pretzel and <laughs> the full pretzel oh not the full pretzel <laughs> And we have a Hulk inverted colors in a wrestling ring. Yep. I don't think the WWF or whatever it was. <laughs> the only WWF in the UK in the 80s at the time had David Attenborough. In the front. Had, a, had a panda as its mascot. Yeah. Yes, yes, exactly. Uh, it's full on. It's nicely larger than life. 
again, compared with Scream sort of running in parallel, it's not monster. They're hiding in bins. Mm. Mm. <laughs> Samuel Beckett like, yeah. Speaking of Scott Goodall, I see next week we've got uh, the return of a uh, beloved character. Powder dry, powder dry. <laughs> Before we look at that, because we've finished this run of stories, and Peter, I have to ask you, in traditional fashion for this kind of show, what was your top and bottom story for this run of eagles? <gasps> this nest of eagles? Dave, I'm, I'm having trouble finding a bottom. I think this has actually been quite a good month. Yeah, I agree. My top story... Probably from the top of the hour, it's Doomlord. It was you know, the welcome return of the Death Lords in phantom form, of course. Mm-hmm. A bit more world building and some lovely art. I'm very much enjoying it. And, and Mrs. Souster is Hilda Ogden. Oh, oh of course. course. I mean, They're that, all crushing hard. <laughs> frankly, frankly, that's just fan service at this stage. But yes. I'm, I'm, I'm here for it, as the kids say. The Death Lords isn't the best ship in this issue. No. <laughs> <laughs> No. <laughs> Bottom for the month? Oh, look, there's at least one Duff Amstor story. It's as Duff as the good Amstor story is good. That's the MacDuff of Duff. Yeah. But weirdly, Amstor also has one of the best stories of yes. the month as well. <laughs> yes. So, uh, go figure. It's one of those months you could give them best and worse in the same breath. Yeah. I think I'm just going to have to settle on Crow Street. Is the weak link, mm. this one. Okay, fair enough. I know Jack's been a bit of a whipping boy for me recently, but we've got that really all-important turn in the story. Yes. Crow Street, we're on a countdown, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. I hadn't thought of it that way, but you make a good point. Yeah, For my best, I'm actually going to take a note out of your book, and I'm going to say this month it's Mannix. Ooh. I mean, don't get me wrong, Doomworld had an excellent return, but Mannix has sort of upped its game for this payoff that's actually, it's been building to with the enemy hands and stuff. And as you say, it's it's actually pulling everything back and going, this is all relevant. Mm. We haven't forgotten this. Whereas Dan Dare, in a similar situation, it's all gearing up. It, it shows how much the wheels have been spinning a bit there. Mm. But, you mm. know, Mannix is, Mannix is paying off. So that's what I'm going to do. But I have Ooh. to do also go honourable mention to the freakiest Amstor computer story ever. Yes, I mean, it deserves to be alongside Junk Food Express. For, yes. um, for really strong Amistad stories. And like you, worst, it's really tricky. Nothing's actually too bad this month, apart from the Amstel Computer Uncle Ben story, mm. which is a low bar anyway. And I've got, I've got to say, it's Dear All the Brothers, and I'm going to go with the brothers just because mm-hmm. enjoying it. But it's a bit silly. It gets the pathos there, but as a 12-year-old, I'd be more into Monster and what's going on with that one. Mm. But note, Dan Dare, if it wasn't for the Bane or bashing, you'd be on notice. Ooh. I think the pathos saves the brothers this month for me. But I am looking at Vanyo's spreads. It's lovely art, again. I, the brushwork in particular. Really, really nice. But yeah, point taken. But next time, Doomlord meets his own judgment. There are lean times on Crow Street Comp. News team get lumbered with a new assignment. Of course. Things get lyrical for Danny Pike. The brothers hits the road while Mannix clears a rat's nest and the White House calls for one-eyed Jack. Plus, you won't believe the old fan favourite who manages to get back into the comic. (laughs) 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 Where are Eagles Dare? You can find us on SoundCloud. You can find us on our own webpage, sofagidden at wordpress.com. We're also on Facebook and we tweet at sofagidden. Until then, stay safe and well, and we will see you next time. 
It's a good night from me. And it's a good night from me. Good, good night. night.